0: Thirteen, I guess the last fourteen verses of Luke chapter two. Luke two, beginning in verse thirty nine. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing Him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for Him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find Him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for Him. After three days, they found Him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. some of your both both could be accurate translations and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, I don't doubt that there's various ways that we could go on this text. I'll tell you, if you guys want to read something that you'll find profitable to your souls. I didn't read this now, but I have in some time past. Spurgeon does a message based on the text supposing him to be in the group, well, in the King James, which Spurgeon preached from it, was supposing him to be in the company. And he does a message on that and he spiritualizes it about... Individuals and churches who suppose Christ to be among them, and He's not. Very, very interesting message for your reading. But I am going to kind of go in another direction. I don't know if you guys can relate to this. When I was when I was young, see, my parents they did not raise me up in any kind of godliness or godly example at all. One thing I do remember doing with my parents, not really going to church, but they were they were ones that liked to go and watch Broadway performances. And they took my brother and I sometimes. I can remember most of the time we were not crazy about those things. But they took us a couple times. I remember they took us to see a Christmas carol and they took us to see the Nutcracker. So that tells you what time of the year we generally got to go. But I can remember. You know, you come into the place and they give you the, the, the program and you go and you sit down there. And you know, depending on how early your parents like to be, you sat sometimes for a long time, and oh, it got boring. And you know, my brother and I, when's it going to start? When's it going to start? And we had the program and we'd read through it. I've kind of felt like the guy who's gone to see one of these Broadway productions and he's waiting for the show to begin. It seems like, if you, if you just think about Luke, it seems like we've been expectingly waiting in our seats for the show to start. You know we had the program. We've read about it. Luke gave us, you know, he gave us the bulletin when we came in. He gave us the program. We've gone through it. I mean, it's kind of like that. You know, we we have all these. You know, you know what the programs are like. You go through and you you look at all the actors and it tells you where they're from and the degrees they have and what past performance and you find out all this stuff. And Luke has been telling us that valuable, no doubt, very valuable. Information. Stuff. Truth. Doctrine. He's been feeding it to us. And you know, we've, it's, it's been coming. Here, Luke shows us these two old parents. And there's, they're going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner of the Lord. And you know, we hear about it. We come over to Mary. Here comes, here comes the angel. There's going to be one. His name is going to be Jesus. And so it's coming. I mean, We're getting the information. He's going to be great. To sit on his father's David's throne. He's going to be called the son of God, the son of the Most High. I mean, here it's it's coming, it's coming. You, you find Elizabeth. She she looks at Mary, the mother of my Lord, and Mary starts and she talks about God, her Savior, and she's speaking about this promise that was made to Abraham. And I mean, here he's coming, here he's coming. You you got old Zechariah. I mean, how does he say it? Horn of salvation, day spring from on high. And You got Zechariah. We looked at that, and, or not, not Zechariah. You got old Simeon. How did he put it? We're told the consolation of Israel. He's going to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. The glory of Israel. I mean, here it's coming. We got the whole program set out before us. And I know Christ was born actually before this, but you know he's he's an infant there. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't. We don't see his thinking. We don't see his actions. All the all the the involvement is all with shepherds and a mother and and you know you got kind of, you got that kind of activity going on. But folks, here he is. The King of Glory has come on the stage. I mean, this is what I've been waiting for. He's before us. I mean, folks, this is no small matter. And I'm not. I I don't lessen the value of any of the Scriptures that have gone before this. Not at all. It's God's Word, folks. It's profitable. But here we are. The King is before us. You guys understand? Right here, we are coming face to face with God manifest in the flesh. Now, He's only a 12-year-old little boy. But he's, He created the universe. God, we have the fullness of deity before us. Now you guys, some of us... We went to a conference just recently, and one of the preachers was trying to explain the holiness of God. He was trying to define that, and accurately and rightly, he said that the word holiness or holy has to do with cutting. And in fact, if you read Sproul about it, he talks about the the modern verbiage we might use: a cut above the rest. There's and he liked that expression because God is cut and separated, but not just separated on an even level. He's separated above. There's a transcendency with God's holiness. And here this preacher at this conference was trying to describe this. And he said, God is totally separate. God is totally different. God is totally, as the old Puritans used to talk, He is other there is an otherness about God. When God comes along and he seeks to define himself, he does not say, like we would, you know, if you wanted to define my son, what would you say he's like? He's like me. I mean, I can say, well, in some ways, I'm like the rest of you. In some ways, I'm like my dad. I'm like my grandfather. But when God comes along, We can't say there's something like Him. When He wants to define Himself, what does He say? I am that I am. I mean, God is a measure of God alone. And there's nothing else you can take and put it side by side. But you know, this preacher said, until 2,000 years ago, there was a carpenter in Nazareth and God said, look there, I'm like Him. Folks, you know how Hebrews 1 3 says it? The radiance of the glory of God. The express the express imprint or image. This is the image of the eternal, the invisible God. I mean, he, we have a man who can actually say to his disciples, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. At this juncture in Luke's gospel, folks, we are looking into the very face of Jesus Christ Himself. Now, you say, what's all that about? I mean, that's, that's neat, that's glorious, that's. Uh... Well, I'll tell you this if you have a love in your heart for Christ, it makes it jump. I mean, it really does. You want to see the one that you long to behold. But I'll tell you something else about this. This is a life transforming vision. This is a life transforming look when you look at Jesus Christ. Does the weight of that hit you? It transforms. I want to get a little I'll touch on that a little bit more in a few minutes. But folks. Christians, I'm speaking to you. You're a professing Christian. I know you. And you know how I know you? Because I know me. We come from the same stock, folks. We're made of the same stuff. Although by the grace of God, I am not what I once was. Folks, I am not what I want to be. What I long to be. And what I will be. And the fact is, folks, you know it in your own heart. We're the same. Christian, you've got something in your heart you don't like. It's there. And you know what? The fact is, we need to be changed. And so it's not as though When I talk about Christ and beholding Him and beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this is such a view, this is such a vision, this is such a beholding as actually changes what we are. And the Bible tells us that. We'll look at that a little bit. We'll look at that. We feel. We feel it. You know, folks, you got, you got the Apostle Paul. He said it to the Philippians, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I feel it! And if you're a Christian, you feel it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They're like damnable weeds that come up in the garden. They're foreign, folks. They're a mark of the curse. Damnable weeds. I. You know it. Self. 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 Self glory. Selfishness. Self preoccupation. You've got pride. You've got lust. You've got covetousness. You've got unbelief. You've got a proneness to speak about others the way you ought not. You've got a proneness to murmur and complain. Discontent. You feel it. You know it. A proneness to anger. Unrighteously so coveting the things that the world has out there. You feel it. A heart that's lazy. A heart that doesn't love God like it ought to. Weeds, folks. It's there. But brethren, we have hope. Looking in the very face of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand something. The very prescription for what ails us is found there. It really is. You know something? Back when I was first saved in 1990, of course, most of you guys know I was saved through John MacArthur's ministry. actually reading one of his books. But you know, once God saved me, and of course, I wasn't going to a church. I wasn't raised up that way. I didn't know anything. All I knew is God had used this man's book. And so I figured, he must be pretty accurate. And I started getting his tapes. And I got a series of tapes on Matthew 10. And if I remember right, there there was one called, and I recommend them to all of you, just an excellent series of sermons. There was one called Christlikeness. The goal of discipleship. MacArthur was dealing with this passage from Matthew 10. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Brethren, does something in your heart say, yes, yes, that is enough? To be like him, it's enough. I mean, Christ says it, and our hearts say it. It is enough. This is my objective. To be like him, right. and if you're a Christian, this Amen. will be your objective. And there is no higher objective. There is no higher standard than being Christ-like. Amen. Being Christ-like is being like Christ, right? right? But somebody might say, well, "Wait a second. When I come to the Bible, I read. I read like um, you know, if you, if you read any amount of John Piper." Or of Jonathan Edwards? Hey, those guys say the most important thing that we're supposed to do is to glorify God. Somebody else might say, hey now, are you sure that's the highest objective? Because the way I read my Bible, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Yes. Yes, yes, yes! To both of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. But guys, have you ever read in Romans 3 that sin is described as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know what Hebrews 4.15 says about Christ? Yet without sin. He had no sin! If He had no sin, he never fell short of the glory of God. Folks, we're on the same page here. If glorifying God, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, we're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. And you've got Jesus Christ who never sinned. Guess what? He never fell short of the glory of God. In everything Christ did, He aimed at that mark. And He hid it. You talk about love. Hey, Christ Himself says to us, I do as the Father has commanded Me. You know what? Doing what somebody commands you is a mark of love, is it not? Jesus Christ said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Christ said, I have kept my Father's commandments, and you know why I did? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Folks, to be like Christ is enough. To be like Christ is to hit the mark, to glorify God all the time, to hit the mark of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. It is enough. It is enough and folks, my heart and I, I think I think you can I think you can put some teeth into that folks when I say damnable weeds I mean it's something that we get to the place do you ever get to the place where you just hate yourself you hate it, you hate what's in there if you could just it becomes Sometimes a discouragement. I mean, folks, that's a righteous anger. To have that anger, it's good and it's righteous. But you groan, and that's what the scripture says. That's what Romans eight says. We groan, folks. It's not just the creation that groans. Romans eight twenty three says not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Man, woman, child, I want to ask you something. Is this your goal? Is this what you desire? Is this what you long after? Is this your constant preoccupation? Let me tell you something. If you sit in this room right now and you hear My voice, I want you to hearken to this. If you do not have that preoccupation and that desire, you should be afraid. You should be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after Christ's likeness. You say, wait a second, brother, I know that text. It doesn't say that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But folks, I'm telling you, Christ is the standard of righteousness. He is that standard. He is that mark. He is that goal. He is that perfect standard that we are to aim at. And I will tell you again, and I'll repeat this, if you do not have this desire, you should be afraid. Turn there from Luke. Turn over to 1 John. Look at John first John chapter three and verse two. You should be afraid. Hear what the Apostle John says about this. First John three and two. Beloved, we are God's children now. now. Now, guys, understand this. John is not saying we are all Christians. In fact, the whole tenor of this whole first epistle of John is to say what? You may know that you abide in Him if this is true, and if this isn't true, you don't abide in Him. If this is true, then you can know that you are. If it's not true, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. Back and forth He goes. He gives this book so that we who are true may have assurance that we are so. And to help those of you that are not true to know that you are not true. And so, he's been doing this all the way through the book. What he's doing now is he's being very descriptive of something that is true of Christians only. He's not saying everybody's a Christian. He is saying that those who are Christians, here is a fact that is going to be true about them. What is this fact? Well, we don't yet know what we will be. You see that there? What we will be has not yet appeared. We We don't have the full picture yet, folks. But, we do know something. We know that when He appears, when Christ comes, we will be like Him. Folks, body and soul, we will be like Him. However, and to whatever extent, how much it's possible for a redeemed sinner, a man, to be like the Son of God, we're going to be like Him. How much ever it's possible, we're going to take on His image. Now look at this. And why is that going to happen? Because we're going to see Him as He is. Okay, we're going to see Him. We're going to become like Him. But now notice this. 1 John 3. :3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. You see this? We have a hope here. There's a hope. The Christian has a hope. They have an expectation. They have a longing. There is something they desire after. What is it that they were hoping for? To be changed into His image. But now, folks, here's the key. If you are a Christian and if you are on your way to becoming like Christ, it is because you are going to see Him face to face, be transformed into His image. And if you are truly one who has that hope, guess what? You just can't go around saying, I have that hope. I have that hope. There better be something else true about you. You see what it is here? Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Christian, this says if you have a hope of being like Christ in the life to come, that hope will express itself now in this life by striving after purity to be as pure here as He is pure. Folks, you have no legitimate claim to Christianity if there is no desiring after the image of Christ here. Don't tell me you want to go to heaven and you want to be like Him there if you are not longing for it and striving for it here. I mean, this is a biblical reality. You know what? Christ-likeness. It will be the goal of discipleship. It is our goal. It is our intent. I looked all over for that message yesterday and I couldn't find it. I, I, I want to listen to it. I want to hear what MacArthur has to say about that. But folks, we don't need MacArthur. We've got a higher right. standard. You know what? The Scripture tells us that this is the very focal point of the Christian life. Now, you know what? Maybe you don't think about it in this way because sometimes it comes out in other terms throughout the Scriptures. But think with me. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 11? You know what Paul says there? He says, be imitators of Me as I am of Christ. Now, what is Paul saying to us? Is he saying, I'm the ultimate standard? No. He is saying, only imitate Me insofar as I am an imitator of Christ because Christ is the ultimate standard. He is ultimately the One that you want to imitate. And that is always the case, folks. Any place in the Scriptures where you are called to imitate somebody, or to follow an example, it is always to follow them in so much as they imitate Christ. And never beyond that. Never. Another text for you. Matthew 10.25. We already said it. But I like it. It is enough for the disciple to be like His teacher. Well, who's the disciple? I am. Who's the teacher? Christ is. It's enough if I am like Christ. In other words, Christ-like. Right? That's enough. Christ's likeness is there's no higher folks. John thirteen, fifteen. For I have given you an example. Guys, think about this. Christ says, I gave you guys an example. Remember he washed their feet? Now, why does he give an example? Why do you think Christ gave us an example? Do you think it's because he wanted us to follow that example? Right. He wanted us to be like him. Right? Again, I mean this is I know it's not incredibly complex here. Philippians two five. You know what? Paul realizes there was a in Philippi, remember when you get to the very last chapter, you've got some women that seem to be squabbling there? You know with at Philippi, there weren't really any major problems, but there was some underlying friction, and Paul knew how that could get out of hand. Next thing you know, they end up like Corinth. He doesn't want that to happen. So he gives them a little discourse on humility, on unity. And where does he go? Philippians 2 5. Let this mind be in you. Which mind? The same mind that was in Christ. In other words, what's He want us to do? Be like Christ. Think like Christ. Act like Christ towards one another. I mean, this, folks, this is the biblical target. This is the objective and the goal of Christianity. It is to be like Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Think about that phrase. Follow in His steps. He's an example so that we might follow Him. How often does Christ look to somebody and say, Follow me? I mean, you got Nathaniel, follow me. You've got Matthew, follow me. You've got all the disciples that are out there fishing. Peter, follow me. It's it's and doesn't isn't that what he says in the end? Remember, Peter? Lord, what about this man? Peter, you follow me. It doesn't matter, you, you just don't worry about that guy. You follow me. Remember, you got some guy. Lord, I need to go bury my father. You let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. Rich, rung ruler, here he comes. I mean, folks, this is the issue. I want eternal life. Okay, you want eternal life. What does he tell him to do? You take everything you have. You go away and you sell it. You give to the poor. And you come follow Me. And you'll have treasure in Heaven." Mm -hmm. Folks, this is always it. This discipleship itself, Christ said, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to carry your cross. And you've got to follow Him. And folks, there's no other way. This is the target. Don't even play with Christianity if this is not your intent. If this is not your burden. If this is not your goal. Scriptures are very plain here. You know what Christ said? Folks, this is what happens. My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. We hear. You know what God says? He says that He calls. We hear. He calls. But folks, whom He calls, what did He do? He predestines to be what? Conformed to the image of Christ. God doesn't call anybody except He calls them predestined now. Afforded be conformed to the very image of Christ this is it folks it is enough it is enough and our hearts cry out indeed it is enough <clears throat> I mean I we as fast as we do that you know folks as fast as I can look at Christ, And I can see the example. And I can say, it's enough. My heart says that. It's enough! But at the same time, my heart says the very things that I want to do. My desire is to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not the good that I want to do, the evil I do not want to do. I keep on doing what I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. My heart says the same thing that Paul's did. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And, folks, I'll tell you who God will deliver us. And He does it by a most magnificent method. Now, you guys need to get this. He does it by an incredibly glorious and magnificent method. You see, God has an agenda. He has an agenda to lift His Son up. And you know what He's done? He has determined to make every one of you children of God in this room, every true Christian here, you know what He has done? He intends to lift His Son up and have you look at Him. And by looking at Him, you will be made like Him. Have you ever read anything in the Scriptures remotely like this? Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And just I want this text to really come home to us. You guys, we are at a pivotal point in Luke's Gospel. Because from this point forward, we have Christ in all of His lived out glory. His words, His actions, His activities, His thoughts, they are put on the screen before us. And I want you to realize something. This, this is essential. To your, when, when you look inside and you say, oh, wretched man that I am, folks, lift up your heads because here is your hope. Here is the very manner in which God has chosen to change you from that corruption and that depravity that yet remains. Here is how He has determined to purge that from you. Watch this. We all... With unveiled face. Now again, he's speaking to a church. He's speaking to Christians. The Corinthian church. We all. He's not saying this is true about everybody because if you go back in 2 Corinthians 3, you see that not all are unveiled. Some still have the veil before them and they can't see. We all who are true Christians, we all with unveiled face. God's taken the veil away from us. He's given us eyes to be able to see. We behold the glory of the Lord. Folks. Right? A few verses later, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says there are some who cannot see. They don't behold because Satan has blinded them. So folks, this is clearly talking about a very specific group of people. They behold the glory of the Lord. Now folks, where do you behold the glory? You think you go out and stare at the sun long enough, you're going to find... You'll burn your eyes out of your head, but you're not going to find the glory. Well, you may in the sense that creation reveals the glories of God. But where primarily is the glory of God found? In the Word. In the face of Jesus Christ. And where is the face of Jesus Christ? Where do we find it? Folks, there is no clearer display than in the four Gospels. Nowhere. And we're in one of them. I mean, nowhere do you come face to face with the Savior like you do in these four Gospels. That's why there's four of them. That's why they're multiplied. This is the glory, the radiance of God. And God didn't only choose to show it to us one time. He gave us four different accounts so we could get all the glory. As much as He intends for us to get here is available to us there folks, and everything else, all the Old Testament leads up to this glory and everything the epistles have to do about. Look back on this glory. It's all about that. And here is the glory. Now watch this. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image. Now how does this happen? One degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is well, guys, let me ask you something. What happened? Remember what happened in Mount Sinai? What happened? Moses said, "Lord, I want to see Your glory." Did He show Him His glory? Not the whole deal, but did He see some of it? Literally, He saw His hind. Afterglow, I've heard it called. But He saw. He didn't see it. He couldn't see Him face to face. He'd die. But He saw. The glory passed before, not the full effulgence. But what, and what happened? What happened when he came down from that mount? What did the people do? The people ran. This was shining. Do you guys see what happens when you look at the glory of God? You begin to become like that glory. You see that? Let me ask you this. How is it that you and I as Christians will ultimately be transformed into the likeness of Christ? God just going to snap His fingers? No. What's He going to do? When we see Him face to face, we become like... You see, folks, for Christians, for the people of God, when they come face to face with God, they become like God. And that is what... 2 Corinthians 3.18 is teaching us. We have unveiled face. We behold the glory of the Lord. We are transformed. You guys, you know something? We don't ever want to fall into the Galatian trap. You know what the Galatian trap is? Oh, foolish Galatians! What had they done? You know what they did? By faith. Christ was... Portrayed before them and by faith they laid hold upon him. And then guess what they were trying to do? Same thing the Colossians were trying to do. You know what they were doing? They were trying to become sanctified by the flesh, setting up rules, standards. You know, you got your commandment, you got your list here, you got the rules and the do's and the don'ts. Here's the Lord's day. We better set up folks. Folks, you see what God says to us? How are you saved? I lift up my Son, and those who look upon him, they will be saved. How are you sanctified? Folks, you want to know how those very corruptions and that depravity remaining in your heart, that old man, that flesh, whatever you want to call it, you want to know how that stuff is killed? You want to know how you're sanctified? It doesn't happen by the law. That's right. It happens the same way you're saved. You look at Christ. Right. You yeah. look at Him. You behold Him. Right. Folks, you go into these churches where, yeah, people were actually saved, but now they want to sanctify people by the law. Mm-hmm. Folks, you know what you got? You got a bunch of people running around that don't know whether they're saved or not. They lack assurance. They're all in distress. Why? Because, folks. It's by looking at Christ. Now listen, there's a place for the law. And inasmuch as Christ kept the law and He was the fulfillment of the law, and inasmuch as the very life of Christ and viewing Christ emanates from us the will of God, the commandments of God being carried out in His life, there's no problem with that. But what happens is when people try to just set up the list of rules, that's when the problem comes it tends towards legalism folks and you end up it's not profitable remember in colossians how paul he told them you know you do all this stuff and you you can mess around with with what you eat and all all different things but folks it doesn't help you know the catholic church they're over there and and they're trying to determine that they're they're People ought to be celibate and they ought to eat certain things and they ought to give up things for Lent and they've got all these different things that they want to do. And I'll tell you what, First Timothy says that those are demon doctrines, folks. That doesn't help. It doesn't correct the flesh. Go to Christ. Go to Him as a believer just as much as you did as an unbeliever. That is where our hope is. And that is where the change will come. That doesn't mean there's not an effort. There is an effort. Christ said, you follow Me. There is an effort. But what you do as you look at Christ, you see who He was, what He was. And I'll tell you what, we're told that God is going to spiritually, supernaturally empower you by His Spirit to become more and more conformed to that image. One degree after another. Folks, it doesn't happen overnight. Some of you, and I feel it too. We get discouraged with ourselves because we're not where we want to be. Well, that's not all right. We need to strive to get beyond where we are. That's true. But folks, it's a fact. It happens one degree at a time. And you know when Christ saves us, we're very unlike Christ. And we're not going to be fully conformed to that image to the end. Folks, it's a road we've got to run. It's a trial that we're going to work out. We've got to deny ourselves. We've got to carry that cross. And we need to follow Him. Now folks, early. Is that scary? No, it shouldn't. That is my first point. And that point, and I'm not going to be long here because folks, I want to make this point. That's really all I want to do today is make this point. Once I make it, I want to delve into it into some weeks ahead. I really want to stay here for a little while because I think our church is at a place where it needs this. And I believe that there is a connection here that might help some of us. As I already mentioned to you, beholding Christ, it is the objective of discipleship. It is the goal. But I want to ask you a question here. And I know this is going to maybe seem to you like it's a question out in left field, but I hope to show you it's not that at all. There are some very practical matters here. How does likeness fit in with child rearing? Now, now, folks, the reason, And I'm not asking that question on this basis. I'm not saying how Christ-like do you need to be to rear your children. I'm saying as I instruct my children, as I discipline my children, as I bring them up as the old author I says in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as I seek to do this, as I strive to bring my children up before the Lord, what part... Does the image of Christ play in how I deal with my children, how I discipline them? And and there's a, folks, there's a connection. If you're elsewhere in your Bibles, come back now to Luke chapter 2. Come back here. And I, I want to tell you where I'm coming from in this. Guys, do you realize from verse 40? Down through verse 52. There's 13 verses there. Chapter 2. There's 13 verses. This is the only place in all of God's Word where Christ is a youth. It's where He's a child. And what I mean by that is He's beyond infancy, but He's not yet to manhood. This is it, folks. This is it. And so... no as I want to do all the way through Luke, I'm, I'm going to be confronted and you are going to be confronted with Jesus Christ. There He's going to be on the pages. We need to look at Him. Folks, if you want to be Christ-like, then you better know what Christ is like. Right? And so, that's that's the objective. Come to the Scriptures. I want to see what is Christ like. Well, as I began to look at this text I, and I was thinking about, well, He's a child here. We have lots of children in our church. We have lots of young parents who are striving to raise their children up. And I thought, how is Christ, as He's portrayed here, how should that affect the way you and I raise our children? Does it have an effect? And you know as I as I began to think about okay what what was Christ like when he was 12 years old There's five verses here where I see words or actions or descriptions of his character that show me what Christ was like at this age five verses I want you to notice them The first is Luke 2:40 The child grew and became strong filled with the filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now folks, I'm not so interested in physical descriptions because it's the spiritual that we're concerned about when we raise our children. I can't, and you know, when it comes to being Christ-like, we're not concerned about the physical anyways, because even if it said he's a big man, I can't make myself a big man. As if it says he's a little man, I I can't make myself physically like him. The spiritual is what we're striving after. Well, what are the spiritual things that are indicated for us here? The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. What do you see first? Wisdom filled with it. Favor of God was upon him. Well, those are good things. He was favorable in the sight of God. Filled with wisdom. The next one is Luke 2.47. Here we find some information about Him. All Remember, when He stayed at Jerusalem, He went in among the teachers in the temple, and all who heard Him were amazed at His understanding. They were amazed. He had an amazing understanding. Right? Okay, next thing. Luke 2.49. He said to His parents, after they'd been looking for Him, why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be in My Father's house? Or, you know, in the original, it's really just fathers. It's didn't you know I must be about My Father's? And it's, it's empty. It doesn't say house. It doesn't say business. It doesn't say anything there. It's just whatever it pertains to My Father, that's what I needed. Didn't you know? That's what I needed to be about? That's what I needed to be involved with? So, Christ is involved with things that pertain to God. Right? Okay, next thing. Luke 2.51 And He went down, that's Jesus, with them, His parents, earthly parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Some of your Bibles will say He was in subject to them. It's the word submission or subjection or to be obedient to. Luke 2.52 And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. There's wisdom, there's stature, favor with God, favor with man. So, so, you guys have an idea about when he was 12 years of age, what he was like. Here's some of the realities. So, how does this apply to the way I raise my kids? How does the Christ-like image, the very person of Christ, how should that play into the way I raise this guy? Now, now before I answer that I want us to think about something I think you I think these are applicable maybe we don't all think just alike but but this I think this can come into play I want you to see that this is a very important thing to answer this is not something that we can minimize or mitigate or just push off to the side now folks I think we got some difficulties with this church. You say, oh brother, what's that? It's actually it's probably good in one sense, but here it is. How many of you are first gen how many of you in this room are professing Christians? Raise your hand. Okay? Professing Christians. Now, out of all those, how many of you did not have Christian parents? Well, and Ruby can raise her hand too because her father saved now, but he wasn't when she was saved. You, you know what? Most of every Christian in this room raise their hand the second time. Most. Now I know you guys. I'm saying most. But listen, something happens here when when we are first generation Christian. Now, Charles, hey, you he had a hit a grandmother, but I don't think your parents. No. Your parents weren't. Stormy's parents weren't. Munoz's parents weren't. Morales's parents weren't. Garza's parents weren't. Mine weren't. My wife's weren't. I mean, on it goes. And other David, years wasn't. So you guys can say, Sister Connie, yours wasn't. Laura, yours weren't. But you guys, you know what can happen? We look at our salvation. We say, hey, you know what? We lived wickedly. Now, some of you more. Some of you less. Some of you had more moral parents than others. Not all your parents were like my father. My father was wicked beyond anything. We didn't all have that. But guess what? No matter what depths, and some of us in this room, because we know for the most part each other's testimonies, we know the depths of sin that we came from. And now we know how we lived. And we lived Bad, rotten lives. Sinful, full of decadence to the core, folks. And yet, God in all of His mercy and grace saved us. And you know what can happen there, folks? We did not have a Christian upbringing. And so you know what? Our tendency can be to minimize the importance of a Christian upbringing. Now, I'm not saying that anybody in here, if you're a Christian, there's going to be a Christian influence upon your kids. Just in the very fact you're a Christian. It's going to happen. You can't be a true Christian and live in the midst of your children night and day without having some influence on them. But what I'm afraid, folks, is that we come to the place where, yes, even though we're not just like the world, we also at the same time don't come up to the biblical standard because we don't feel like it's that necessary. Because after all, we believe in a sovereign God. We're Calvinists. I mean, we we believe that if God's going to save our children, He's going to save them. Folks, we can fall into that thinking. And that is not good thinking. Right. And we don't want to minimize the importance of Christ-likeness with regards to the training of our children right. in this area. Now, I'll come back around to this at the very end. Another thing, folks, you know what happens? We get to the place where we fear that we get the cart before the horse. You know what I mean by that? Here we were, right? I was drinking sin like water. I never thought about what Christ was like. And here God came down into that pit where I was, and He dragged me out. And you know what? He granted me repentance. He gave me the gift of faith, and I turned to Christ. And I turned my back on my wicked ways. And I came. And you know what? It's at that point, you know, I start getting tapes like John MacArthur's on Christlikeness, the goal of discipleship. And now, for the first time in my life, I'm thinking about this. And you know what happened? Because many of us came out of that same background. You know what's happened? God busted into our life. There was repentance. There was faith. And then we started thinking about what it was like to be Christ-like. And so with our kids, we can get to the place where we start thinking, well, hey, isn't Christ-likeness and all that kind of secondary here? I mean, shouldn't we be concerned that we get them saved first? I mean, shouldn't we just talk to them about sin, 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 sin? You need to repent. You need to believe. And that's pretty much our message. And you know, we can think that way. Because we can think, well, you know, we're getting, we start giving them the whole Christ-like thing before you know, we get this thing beforehand. They don't have a new heart. And, and they, can't, they can't produce fruits of righteousness and fruits of Christ-likeness unless they're first converted. And we can think that way. And I think that's faulty thinking too. And I'll show you that from the Scriptures. I'm not trying to undermine faith and repentance one bit, but I want to I, I will conclude by showing you something. guys, you ever have this dilemma? I hope you have. I hope you've thought about this. Should I raise my child as a Christian or should I raise my child as the same man that I deal with a prostitute that comes in off the street. Now I mean folks these are things to think about. One time we had a Presbyterian a Reformed Presbyterian come to our house for lunch. And I got talking with him. And this is back when we were out at community. And you know, he believed that his children were children of the covenant. You know, he held the covenant theology. For those of you that don't understand what that means, it's basically, they look at the Old Testament, they believe that the Old Testament is basically just... There's really no radical differences or changes when you come over to the New Testament. Therefore, they take their circumcision, which was given to children. They come over, they say, Well, therefore, baptism should be to our children. The Passover was done with the children. Come over here, and there's a large and fair number of them that would say, Also, the Lord's Supper should be done with them. And you know, the more we talked, the more concerned I got about this whole guy's attitude. They're children of the covenant. I said, Let me ask you something. Would you ever tell your children to repent and believe? He said, "Oh no I said, you know what that's damnable that's damnable, but you know this is something we need to wrestle through I mean is you know do i do I try to lead my Christ or my child to follow christ and and somehow faith and repentance aren't there I mean what's Well, and folks, there's another problem. And again, I'm going to come back. Just as I finish up, I want to touch on all these things right as we go out of the message. But folks, there's another thing here. You know what happens sometimes? We can minimize the importance of the way we upbring our children because we have this notion. And we get discouraged with this. Well, after all, I I can't touch their heart. And if I simply set before them Christ and they haven't been saved, all I'm going to do is turn them into Pharisees. All they'll do is they'll correct things on the outside. And they'll get this thing, and I can't touch the heart, and so we can get discouraged. Lord, you haven't done anything, and so we get discouraged. What good's my upbringing, Lord, unless you do anything here? Now, folks, I want to tell you something. When you come to all these descriptions of Jesus Christ, right here in Luke chapter 2, guess what it says? He had favor with God and man. You know what? You go back to the Proverbs and you know what? You find children there being instructed in such a way, a father pressing his son, my son, do this and do that and keep my commandments. Why? So that you may have favor with God and man. It's back there in the Scriptures. You see, he was full of wisdom. You know what the father told his son back in Proverbs? Get wisdom. Right. By understanding. He had remarkable, amazing understanding. The very things that he had. Was he submissive? Yes. Children, obey your parents. Is that not what the New Testament tells us? Every single thing that you find described what Christ was like in Luke 2 is exactly something you can go somewhere else in the Scriptures and find is instructed to children to do. Be about... Your Father's business. You know what? What's all that about? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. Give your whole life to pursuing His pursuits. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. It says that. Teach your children diligently these things. It says when you rise up, when you lay down. Folks, all through your day, you're supposed to be setting these things before your kids. I'm telling you this. Christ-likeness is not only the goal of discipleship, Christ-likeness is the goal of parenting. What Christ is like is the very thing you need to put before your children. And don't minimize it. Folks, this is not getting away from faith and repentance. I'm telling you this. You tell your children, here is Christ. Here is His image. And look to Him in faith. Right. Believe, Son, what I tell you about Him. Believe this. And repentance, folks, this is repentance. Here is Christ. Here is the standard. You tell your son, your daughter to look to it. When they look to that standard, they're looking away from every other standard. Right. That is repentance. Amen. That is the very heart of it. You say, have yeah, a You know, like you were talking before, I can't touch their heart. You know what? You can do more to that heart than you think you can. Scripture says, folks, if there is foolishness or folly bound up in the heart of the child, what are you supposed to do? Take the rod to them! It drives it out! You do! God has given you means to work the heart of that child. He has! Now, I'm not getting away from the fact that God must come down and God must ultimately regenerate that child. If your child's going to be born again, it must be a moving of the Spirit of God upon him. But I'm telling you this, folks. Your children have an advantage. Yes. Come on, you say, that sounds Presbyterian. Listen, what did Paul say? What advantage then has the Jew? Mm-hmm. You know why the Jew had an advantage? Because he had the Word of God. He had yeah. the oracles of God. He had the prophets of God. You know why your children have an advantage? Because they have Christian parents. Right. Right. Come on, brother. Preach it. God sent somebody out of the darkness, folks, into that hole where you were to save you. Your Christian parenting is just as important as our sending the gospel to heathen India. It is. And you know something as well? When God saves your children. And I'm saying when. There are promises. I know we don't have a promise that every single one of our children are going to be saved. But folks, there are promises in the Scripture that for that man that lives upright, his children are going to be blessed. There are promises in the New Covenant that say that these promises are not only to us, they are to our children. There are promises there. And I know that we... We take those promises for what they are. I know that doesn't guarantee me every one of my children will be saved, but it gives me good hope they may be. And I'm saying this, when your children are saved, folks, if you brought them up in the way they should go, and what's the way? What way should they go? There is no other standard than to follow Christ. And if you bring them up in that way, folks, the Scripture says they will not depart from you. Folks, your parents didn't bring you up in that way you first generation Christians here, you may be saved, but I'll tell you this, you look at a son or a daughter of somebody who's a third or fourth or fifth generation Christian, and I'm telling you what, they don't have issues in their life near to the degree that we do. It, folks, that's a reality. When you're brought up in a Christian home under those Christian influences and you're saved early, you know what? You don't battle a whole lot of the things that we do who lived in sin 25-30 years. We don't. And what often happens, folks, in Christian families is you get good, godly Christian parents. They help lift their children way above where they were. Right. Yeah. Way above where they ever came. Right. Please, Folks, I end with this. But this is what we're going to consider ourselves with in the next few times. Brother Child is going to preach next week and then we're going to have Prem the week after that. And Lord willing, I'm going to plan the following week after that although our beloved missionary from Turkey may be here that week. When I once again hit the pulpit, my plan is to deal with this Christ-likeness and the raising of our children. All I want to do is show you today that there is good, firm, solid, biblical evidence that Christ-likeness is not only the standard for your life as a believer, it is the standard that you need to set before your children. And you guys... We are told, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and the instruction or the fear and admonition. The first word fear or discipline has to do with the idea of instructing your child to a standard. You set a standard before your child and then you discipline them, instruct them to follow it. And when they don't, there is discipline. You spank them. You correct them. And folks, do it with love. You remember. That's the same standard God sets for us. Christ-likeness. And remember how He deals with us when we fall out of line. He's tender, but firm. That's the way we're supposed to be. But the second thing is, what do you have at the end there? The admonishing part. The fear and admonition. It has to do with warning. Mm -hmm. Folks, this is it. We set up the standard of Christ before our children. We direct them towards it. Discipline them towards it. And we warn them about other ways. New Testament doesn't give us a whole lot, does it? You don't have a whole lot in parenting. The Proverbs give us just a wealth. A wealth. I would challenge you guys. And I'm thinking about this. I challenge you. Spiritually speaking, find one characteristic of Jesus Christ that somewhere in the Bible is not stressed and pressed upon children. And I don't think you will. I'm not talking baptism, I'm not talking Lord's supper, things like that. I'm talking in the act in the character of the person, the way they think, the way they act. There's nothing, folks. Christ is the very heart, the objective, the goal of parenting. Father Father, we don't, we so often fall short of the goal. Lord, to set it up before our children. Lord, our children know that we failed. But Lord, in all of our failures, May You change us, Lord, degree by degree into that image. And may You help us to be faithful parents, to set it before our children and guide them to them, to that image, press them to it, discipline them to it. But Lord, all the time, we are cast upon Your hands, Lord. You must renew the heart of our children. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient and then watch what You do. Just as You called us to preach the Gospel, Lord, we can be faithful. We can be determined. We can set ourselves to do it. And yet in the end, Lord, the whole work does rest ultimately in Your hands. Lord, please be merciful to our children. Please be merciful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.